back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and what I've been doing for the past couple of weeks is working my way through the first four issues of Wildcats, and frankly, this is all part of a sort of a broader series that I'm doing that's, honestly, I wasn't really able to think of a better title for it other than these seven men are disrupting the comic book industry, and so in case the title of this series alone doesn't give it away. Basically, what this series is endeavoring to do is uh, take a look back at the initial offerings of Image Comics and just kind of decide for myself. I mean, you guys are all welcome to believe whatever you want, but just sort of decide for myself how good or bad are these comics really? And I gotta tell you, so far I've been having an absolute fucking blast doing all of this because Number one, I, I remember being really interested in these comics at the time that they were coming out. And number two, this is just such a breath of fresh air as compared to, to the modern state of the comic book industry and just the bullshit that's getting published these days. It's just not anything that I want to have anything to do with. And so this is kind of a good opportunity for me to just take a look at some high-octane, uh, high super-duper, action-packed, fun comics. You know, there's no bigger agenda. There's just going to be a lot of fights and narrow escapes. There's going to be a lot of stuff that's blowing up. There's going to be a lot of spaceships zooming around and shit like that, right? That's basically what these comics are really all about. So, anyway, so that's, that's that stuff. And so... Honestly, there's probably not much of a point in beating around the bush a whole lot, so let's just go ahead and get straight into Wildcats, Volume 1, Number 3. Uh, creative team is as follows. Brandon Choi and Jim Lee, writers. Jim Lee, pencils. Scott Williams, inks. Joe Chiotto, colors. Michael Heisler, letters. Ruth Grice, editor. Uh, John Ty and Rich Johnson, background ink assists. Wendy Fouts, Joe Mendoza, Rod Mojica, Steve Olive, color assists. I'm going to be coming back to that actually in just a little while. And Digital Chameleon, color separator. Story synopsis for this, for this issue. The story, by the way, is titled Reunification. Story synopsis is as follows. The big beatdown. The fight's on between the Wildcats and Youngblood. And then everybody dies. Not really. But Youngblood does kick the Wildcats' collective ass a little bit, though. This I do affirm. But in the middle of the brawl, Hellspawn's flunkies, Pike and Coda, realize that the battle could be a diversion, a distraction, a ploy to focus the Demonite's attention on one thing while the real plan gets tripped someplace else because Grifter, Zealot, Void, Warblade, and Marlow are all unaccounted for in the middle of the big beatdown as it progresses, so they rush off in search of the missing Wildcats. Turns out that Pike and Coda are not far wrong because those very team members are skulking through a different part of the complex, making their way toward the core. As that's going on, Hellspawn is in the middle of, uh, he's in the control center, posing like this is a Jim Lee comic book or something like that, 
as he and McCoy are in the middle of uh, preparations for uh, project reunification and the, the deployment thereof. Just as the final countdown of Doom is initiated, Grifter, Zealot, Void, Warblade, and Marlow bust into the joint, guns blazing. It's Caravan versus Demonite as another mega battle breaks out in the control room. As all that's going on, remember the gnome from issue number one? Well, he's nefariously seeking the orb too, and so his team is trying to steal it for their own dastardly purposes. Those fiends! Back at the big beatdown, Voodoo has no choice but to use a mystical waylay on Maul because he's growing bigger and bigger and stronger and stronger, and he's like two seconds away from bringing the entire facility crashing down on everybody. Belial, still disguised as Vice President Dan Quayle, gets the drop on Voodoo and is about to relieve her of her brains, as well as various other parts of her skull, but Shaft from Youngblood stops him, saying that she and the other Wildcats should be put under arrest and carted off to jail. Belial files, uh, fires off a shot, so uh, fires off a shot at Shaft. So Voodoo takes that opportunity to show Belial's true colors, casting him out of Vice President Dan Quayle's body in front of Youngblood. Back in the control room, Grifter, Zealot, Void, Warblade, and Marlow have lost their fight with Hellspawn and his minions. Hellspawn then breaches the orb, beginning Project Reunification. A stargate opens high above Earth to allow an armada of demonite ships to come pouring out. To be continued. So, what did I think? Well, just as a general statement, guys, I want to emphasize the fact that the art and just the general appearance of the first two issues of Wildcats, it's been nothing to complain about, all right? It's, it's good art. Good colors, good everything, all right? Just visually, I have not a single word of criticism to level against the first two issues of Wildcat. But having said all of that, guys, you need to understand something. The I don't know if it's a matter of print quality or Jim Lee finding his groove with this title, or, or maybe it's just the different inkers. Maybe it's just the team of colorists. I honestly don't know. But something is very different, in a good way, something is very different about this issue as compared to the two that came before. Um, now, guys, I, I've said a few times now that I've gotten these issues off of Comixology, all right? And to my understanding, number one, I don't think that the Comixology page numbers actually align with the actual page numbers of this issue. So that's something to just keep in mind right now. The other thing, though, is, guys, I, I'm like 99% sure that these Comixology issues, th these are not scans, or rather, these are not taken from the original artwork, recolored, and basically remastered for digital release purposes. On the contrary, I think these are actually scans. Now, very high-quality scans, but scans, nevertheless, of the original comics or maybe reprints or something, I don't know. But scans for certain, because if you know what you're looking for, you can actually see uh, creases in, pay, in uh, the different pages and everything. This is just, this looks scanned to me. So what I'm assuming is that these are the original issues or else very close to the original issues. Maybe, like I say, maybe reprints or something like that that have just been scanned and then released on Comixology. So... 
I'm prepared to say that this that that the issues that I've been reading, and indeed will be reading, these are actually a pretty good representation of what the actual printed comic looks like, right? The original comic, because, like I say, if you just if you know what you're looking for, you can find evidence that these are scams. So there's that. Now the reason I'm being kind of a pain in the ass about this is because there's a very clear upgrade and improvement on the on these the, specifically this issue and then going forward and my understanding is that marv or not marvel um uh image just as a collective they basically uh upgraded their their printing processes something like 3 or 4 or 5 months into the life of the company and so there comes a point when, yeah, Image, Image Comics to start with, they looked pretty good, nothing to complain about, definitely better than the competition. But then it's like everything got cranked up to 11, and from there, we're off to the races. You know, Image was definitely uh, like light years ahead of their main competitors, specifically Marvel and DC. And that is very apparent as you read this issue. And you can, you can just see that this is just an overall superior comic, technically speaking, as compared to what's come before. Again, not that issues one and two looked bad because they didn't, but there's something about the level of detail that's, that's visible in this art, uh, color reproduction, virtually every single criterion that you can think of is just head and shoulders ahead of where issues number one and two were. And issues, again, triple underline this part. Issues number one and two look fine. Nothing wrong with them. But they just cannot hold a candle to how just fucking badass issue number three looks. Now, everything that I've said about the art and whatnot, scans, this, that, and the other thing, I don't think this holds true for the covers. I think these covers actually are remastered, if for no other reason than they've got the DC logo on there. But it it's just the color process. It just doesn't look, on a lot of these covers, it just doesn't look all that, com that uh, comparable to the color process on the interior. And so I'm operating on the, uh, the assumption that the covers have been remastered, for lack of a better way to put it, while the pages themselves have not. So I don't know what to tell you. So, but anyway, speaking of the cover, this is just a great cover. And this is basically, it, it, it's basically making a promise, right? It's the, the members of Wildcats duking it out with the members of Youngblood. And there, this is not a completely literal thing because not all of the members of the Wildcats duke it out with any of the members of Youngblood. The ones I specified that duke it out with Hellspawn, they don't duke it out with Youngblood. So, but whatever. I mean, this is still true, at least on a philosophical level, of what's happening for most of this this issue, where basically the Wildcats are getting their asses kicked by Youngblood. There's really no way around that. And the cover, it basically... It makes the promise of a big pitched battle between the two teams, and boy, does this issue deliver in a big bad way. So getting into what should be page one, but Comixology has listed as page three just because of necessity's sake, 
you instantly see the superior print process or color process or just fucking whatever's going on here. You instantly see the uh, the improvements, whatever they may be, as compared to the first two issues, literally on page one of the of, of this third issue here. And it's from there, it just gets better and better with every single passing page, it seems. Um, uh, this is page four, as per Comixology. You've got the Wildcats. They're basically going toe-to-toe with Youngblood and... In the last episode, I compared the Wildcats to G.I. Joe. I basically called these comics G.I. Joe and Spandex. And upon review, and I mean when I was editing and mixing that episode, upon review, I realized, you know what? That's probably not the best way to describe it. Maybe I should have said Transformers with Spandex because... Well, number one, the Wildcats don't really have any kind of government affiliation. Uh, And number two, you know, what with the secret civil war that's taking place on Earth between two foreign alien races with mankind trapped in in, in the middle? Yeah, that does seem to suggest that the Wildcats have a little bit more in common with... And I mean the Wildcats' property has a little bit more in common with Transformers as a property. So maybe I should have titled the last episode Transformers in Spandex, but hey, woulda, shoulda, coulda. But speaking of G.I. Joe and Spandex, they're right here on page four, according to Comixology, page four as well. If G.I. Joe and Spandex doesn't describe Youngblood, I don't know what does. So, but either way, we get some pretty raucous action uh, scenes uh, starting on page five, uh, which is a double page splash, and then just going forward from there. One of the things that this issue does a really good job of doing is selling the threat that Youngblood poses to, to the Wildcats, because Youngblood, they're, they're better trained, they're better equipped, they're, they've got more experience working together and, and, and just overall more experience in battle they're individually more powerful than the wildcats and so it's not really a a, a question if you know anything about the two teams it's not really a question of who's gonna win it's it what it really come comes down to is how good of a fight are the wildcats really gonna put up and honestly considering the fact that the the wildcats are short-staffed i think they make a pretty good accounting for themselves, all things considered. But in the end, we all know where this is going. But that doesn't take away from just the sheer fucking visceral, visceral pleasure of uh, of watching this huge, just fucking epic fight scene. Uh, you know, page four, like I say, you've got the two teams uh, just sort of lined up against each other. Page five, and page four, by the way, is a two-page splash page five is another two-page splash where now the fight is on and the two sides are just beating the shit out of each other this is just so good so so good and i've said again and again that it's common knowledge that the early offerings of image comics don't exactly have the best reputation when it comes to uh, writing and pacing and characterization and all that stuff, but as I've hopefully emphasized well enough by now, the 
the the key focus of these early image comics what it really especially the stuff by Jim Lee and Rob Liefeld this this really is all about how fucking cool the art looks and how cool the characters all look and how uh just how uh, how much action is going on in every single issue i mean if you buy comics specifically for action scenes dude you are definitely getting your money's worth with uh, these early image comics and you know god bless them you know I, I i'm of the opinion that you know comics being such a visual medium you really do need to keep the emphasis on action and on visuals you need to keep the emphasis on uh let's face it beautiful people wearing really cool superhero outfits and they're weaving their way through uh, collapsing buildings and explosions, and then there's, there's going to be car chases and all that fun stuff. That's what these comics are really all about. And like I say, if that's your agenda when you're buying comics, dude, you can't go wrong with, I would say, basically anything that Wildstorm published for its first two years or so, maybe even more than that. And, I mean, I, well, I say that. You know, I think Gen 13... It's not as action-packed as previous Wildstorm uh, titles, and it does have a little bit more texture and characterization to it than previous Wildstorm titles. So, okay, I'll amend that by saying most of Wildstorm's early offerings are just fucking chock-full of just fun action sequences and just how badass everything is. And God, this is just so good. I love this. And the colors, too. That's something else. I mean, I've kind of talked about that already. But I do want to emphasize that this is what comics are really supposed to look like, guys. Um, uh, take a look at uh, page five of this issue. Well, page five as as Comicsology has it, right? Um, this is it's basically you know in terms of the colors, you've got all these bright colors and these big flashy explosions, and you have all these gigantic weapons that are firing off. Uh, explosive rounds and, and all this stuff. And everyone is wearing a, a bright candy colored sort of superhero outfit of some kind or super villain outfit as the case may be. And this is guys, this is what comics are supposed to fucking look like. Okay. It seems like these days in comics, everything needs to be kind of desaturated gray tones or sepia tones or something like that. And it's just fucking boring to look at. Not to mention the fact that, a lot of these modern-day comic book pages have shit composition by shit artists, and uh, and everything looks like a fucking coloring book, and the inker is probably the penciler himself. He's just inking his own stuff, and there's no real depth or, or, or shading to anything. And that is not what's going on with the art in these issues. The, the colors are all bright and vibrant, and, you know, like I say, you can love or hate uh, images... Uh, early offerings, but you cannot critique this stuff on very much of a of a visual level, just in terms of just how fucking badass everything looks. And this is what, guys, this is what comics are supposed to look like, right? Uh, the men are all impossibly muscular. Uh, the the uh, women, they're all impossibly uh, fit and athletic and they've got big big bozongas and all that stuff and they're wearing impossibly tight uh clothes and guys that's what comics are supposed to fucking look like you know what everything these days it's got to be body positive 
So anyway, whatever. This is turning into a rant. So anyway, moving right along, we this what page is this? Yeah, we catch up with uh, Spartan in the middle of this just fucking melee, uh, beginning on page six, but really page seven is what tells the the uh, tale here. Um, we get a little bit of insight into what Spartan is, who he is, what he's all about. Because we saw him get his arms sheared off in issue number two, which pretty much if you don't get immediate medical treatment, like IRL, you're going to fucking die. All right. Like if you somehow lose an arm and you don't like instantly go to the ER or something like that, you're going to bleed out PDQ. And so here he is missing an arm and he's still running around fighting and kicking ass and everything. And so, like, how is that even possible? And we start getting answers to that on page 7. Uh, when, it, when Spartan gets ventilated by Chapel, the, the uh, captioning says, The shells burst through Spartan's armored synthetic skin and rip apart his cyber-organic systems. But, for better or worse, his seal and heal program begins repairing and rerouting vital power and sensor systems. And despite the fact that he is severely disabled and in traumatic cybersynaptic pain, Spartan never loses consciousness, even as his attacker moves in to finish the job. And apart from being just kind of foreboding captioning, this does tell you a little bit about how Spartan's body works. This guy is not human, or at least not completely human. He looks human. He speaks, he, I assume he has a human-sounding voice, but his innards are at least partially cybernetic. So, what the fuck? And answers are coming on that. We'll, we'll get answers on that soon enough. Now, I mentioned earlier that we don't really get uh, politics in these comics, and by and large, that's something that I stand by, although here on page 7, or at least what Comixology wants me to believe is page 7, Chapel says uh, to Dan Quayle, he says, I'm no Republican, or he doesn't say to Dan Quayle, he says about Dan Quayle, I'm no Republican, but he's still the number two man, and to get to him, you gotta go through me. And that's about as political as this issue gets. It's still patriotic. There's nothing wrong with saying, hey, I don't disagree, or rather, I don't agree with the president or the vice president, but damn it, they're the president and the vice president, and you don't get to hurt them. Because as far as Youngblood's concerned, it looks like what the Wildcats are trying to kill the vice president, and being as they work for the government, that is no bueno. And that's the closest thing that you get to, to a political stand that any of the characters take in this issue. And honestly, this is played more for laughs. You know, Chapel is saying, hey, I'm not a Republican, but I'm not going to let you hurt this guy. You know, there's nothing political. about. In fact, if anything, to the degree that's political at all, that's kind of a bipartisan statement. Although it's not like Chapel is explicitly identifying as a Democrat or anything. He's just saying, I don't have any kind of party affiliation that aligns with this guy, but I'm not going to let you hurt him either. So anyway, God, I wish I wish we could go back to this. Just people leave each other the fuck alone when it comes to politics, you know? And I'm not just saying that because it really looks to me like the left is coming out on the losing, you know what, forget it. 
Anyway, uh, so moving right along, we we just, God, I just fucking love this art, you know. Uh, page 8, badass art with badass colors. Uh, page 9, badass art with badass colors. And then we get to page 10. This is the control room where, where Hellspawn and McCoy are, they're basically in the final stages of uh, preparation for project reunification. This is, like I say, page 10, panel 1. And I kind of joked about it when I was going through the synopsis. But number one, this is a very Jim Lee supervillain kind of pose that Hellspawn is affecting here. But that's number one. But number two, God, it just looks so fucking cool. You know, the lighting, you know, he's got this orange light that's shining off uh, his backside. So his blue bodysuit, there's some contrast there. And you can see a lot of definition in the art. And speaking of the art, just the fucking line style of all this. God, I just love it so much. Guys, I've read... Not everything. I've not read uh, Jim Lee's entire run on X-Men. You know, basically where Jim Lee made his bones. I haven't read through that entire run. But I've read a, a bigly chunk of it, guys. And I, I gotta say, if that was all I knew about Jim Lee, you know, his X-Men work, you know, adject uh, adjectiveless X-Men specifically, if that was all I knew about Jim Lee... I'm going to be totally honest with you guys. I wouldn't see the hype with him. You know, I I, I really wouldn't. I, I, I guess my way of looking at it would be he's good, but there are better people out there than him. I mean, when when it comes to just badass art, circa 1990, 91, I put Dan Jurgens up against fucking anybody. Anybody. And that includes Jim Lee circa 1990, 1991, and through there. But... Jim Lee, in my opinion, seriously rounded a corner when he launched Wildcats, and then he rounded another corner with Wildcats number three. Jim Lee, I think he he, he gets a lot of he gets picked on a lot just because he's so in the same way that Steven Spielberg gets picked on a lot by film students, he's just so prolific and he's so visible. You know, how who better to to pick on than one of the greats, right? He gets picked on a lot, but one of the things that I do have to give Lee is the fact that he's always improving. He is never content to just rest on his laurels and coast. He really does seem like somebody who tries to get better, not just with every single issue, not even every single page, every single panel. He tries to improve his craft. He First off, he just gives me that impression in interviews. But second, if you actually look at the fucking work, you can see sometimes improvements within the same issue. So anyway, I just want to throw all that out there. A Jim Lee critic? I am not. Now, no, I don't think the guy walks on water. Every, every artist has his weaknesses, and Jim Lee is no different. But he's still head and shoulders above, I would say, 90% of artists that are out there, especially right now. So anyway, this is just a cool pose. I just love it. Again, page 10, panel 1. Hellspawn is just doing this Jim Lee supervillain pose. And God, I just eat this up with a spoon. So good. So good. So anyway, there's really not a whole lot to, to be intellectual about and, and rationally critique and all that stuff going on in this issue. Because really, this issue is one big fight scene. This is the big payoff that we've been that we've been working our way up to 
throughout the last two issues. This is where all that battle and, you know, all those battle scenes and narrow escapes, the car chases, the gigantic guns, the women with impossibly huge bozongas, the guys with impossibly huge muscles, and these uh, people who have razors for fingers, but somehow they're still capable of shaking your hand without turning your hand into spaghetti somehow. You know, all, that's where all that stuff, in, right here, this issue is where all that stuff starts getting paid off. So as a result of that, there's really less for me to uh, intellectually quantify and say, gee, isn't this some really good writing? Because the writing, it's mostly dialogue, and the dialogue is mostly expository, and basically everything in this issue is designed to, first and foremost, put the art on display, but the art that's being displayed here specifically is these huge and explosive action set pieces with martial arts moves and backflips and energy shields and and gigantic razor-sharp spears and all these sorts of things. Gosh, it's so fucking cool. I love it. Love it, love it, love it. God, it's so good. And uh, another really good moment, and I'm thinking about using this as the art for, for this episode, actually, but right here on page 13, panel 1, it's basically, this is uh, Warblade. He's... Uh, he's basically tearing apart what looks like this, well, it's a, uh, this is a, a, a demonite who looks kind of sort of like a, a xenomorph from Alien, and Warblade is not fucking around, okay? This ain't a DC comic book, guys. This is not a Marvel comic book. The heroes, if they get the drop on the bad guy, they're not going to put him in handcuffs and march him off to, to prison. They're going to fucking wipe him out. And uh, Warblade is just slashing this, this xenomorph-looking demonite. It's, he's even got green blood. He's slashing this uh, xenomorph-looking demonite into just fucking pieces. First, he uh, puts his hand through his chest. Warblade does. Puts his hand through the xenomorph-looking uh, thing's chest. And then from there, wrestles him down to the ground, and he's just slashing away. You know, just tearing this guy into fucking ribbons. And uh, again, this is just so fucking cool. But it's a reminder that this these comics are going to be a little bit more balls out than DC and Marvel, because, hey... We do not seek and do not intend to find comics code approval on any of these comics. So the heroes are, like I say, if they, if they have a chance to wipe the bad guy the fuck out, guess what they're going to do, guys? And so that's what happens here. But of course, you can't kill the lead villain because then who's going to antagonize the heroes and issues to come? But man, his underlings, you can just mow through them like nothing, man. So, anyway, God, this is just so good. It's just it's just one page after another. Just fucking badass art, badass fights, cool-looking characters, impossibly huge muscles, impossibly huge bozongas, impossibly huge guns. God, I love this. This is so good. Look at this. Look at this. It, it's right here, all right? If you're following along with me, this is uh, page 15 as per uh, Comixology. It's Maul. He's literally crashed. He's so fucking big now. He's crashing through the ceiling of the secret facility, the secret demonite facility, and the ceiling is is caving in around everybody. Everyone is getting knocked over, thrown to the ground, and they're having to dodge debris and gigantic girders that were meant to support the ceiling, but now they're falling down to the ground. God, this is just so good. I love this. He's smashing everybody in his wake, including, this is uh, panel three, including... Um, well, at this time, the character's name is Bedrock. Now, eventually, that's going to have to get changed 
to Bad Rock because, you know, Hanna-Barbera. But for right now, the character's name is Bedrock, and he's really the heavy of Youngblood. As powerful as Youngblood might be, really their toughest guy, just in terms of sheer physical strength, without question, is Bedrock. And overall, I would say that Youngblood is, they're stronger than, than, than the Wildcats, they're tougher, they're more experienced, they have just more raw just superpowers than than the wildcats but the one wildcat that is clearly far ahead of his counterpart on youngblood without question is maul when push comes to shove maul would he could swallow uh, bedrock if he wanted to like literally swallow him if he wanted to so anyways so moving right along, we're getting near the end of uh, of this issue, and it's pretty clear now that you know the heroes they've basically been fighting each other. Now it's time to switch gears a little bit. It's time for the heroes to put their differences aside and team up against a common threat. That's a pretty common trope in comics of the '90s, especially team up comics of the '90s, especially Image Comics specifically, team up comics of the '90s. So overall, you know the trope is um it's uh, definitely in this issue and god bless jim lee and brandon Choi for including it i love this the the heroes they fight there's a big misunderstanding they fight each other they realize that they shouldn't be fighting against each other so then they team up against the bad guys and we don't see the team up against the bad guys in this issue but we see the seeds of it get sown here obviously to be reaped in issue number four and to come but not quite yet. So, God, I just love that. But, you know, one of the characters about, uh, uh, or rather, one of the characters from Youngblood that I remember, but I don't have a whole lot of recollection of, is Vogue. She's one of the coolest looking members of the team. Now, to be fair, really none of the, the members of Youngblood, I don't think they're as cool looking as the Wildcats. Let's face it, I think Jim Lee is just an overall better designer than than Rob Liefeld. Not that either of them is bad, but I just think that the members of Wildcats are just, they're more visually dynamic and engaging and eye-catching than Youngblood. But that does not necessarily hold true of Vogue. She's just got a very interesting uh, character design. And so I Honestly, I don't really know a whole lot about Vogue. I It's been forever since I've read those Youngblood comics, so I couldn't really tell you a whole lot about her. But man, she looks fucking cool. I like Vogue. Not crazy about the name, obviously, but I like Vogue. So anyway, we start getting near the uh, the end of this issue. And again, the fucking colors here, man. This is uh, Comixologies, page 19. It's Void and Marlowe. They're going up against Hellspawn. And Hellspawn, of course, makes short work of them. But it's the two the two Wildcats members. They're standing against this purpley background uh, against which they stand out because of their sort of uh, soft uh, gray sort of character designs. And then you've got Marlowe uh, more in the foreground. And he's the blue element of this. So everything is is contrasted against everything else. Uh, the purple back background, the two gray-ish, silver-ish, white-ish uh, wildcats, and then the very blue uh, hellspont. 
This is what comics are supposed to fucking look like, guys. All that brown stuff that we get these days where it's like everything is, it's like it's this kind of turd colored brown. Or sometimes you even get this kind of pea colored yellow. And it's like, what the fuck, dude? It's like these colors are supposed to jump off the page. They're supposed to uh, engage your, your your eyes and say, hey, look at me. Look how fucking cool I am. And you just don't get that anymore. With mod- I'm getting off on that again. Sorry. I'm sorry. I'm going to try to stay a little bit more on top. Here we go again. Again, this is this is page 20. Comixology is page 20. It's a predominantly white background with... Um, uh, a sort of, I guess, a, a red midground. The demonite's cape is red, and that's kind of forming the midground. The demonite character herself is, she's got, well, purple is is her lead color. Grifter's lead color is green. Uh, uh, this is uh, Zealot. Her her lead color. Let's face it, she's not wearing a whole lot. So her lead co- uh, color is a flesh tone. You get elements of her red bodysuit, but let's face it, her lead color is her her flesh tone. And these colors they contrast against each other. They're bright and vibrant, and everything looks all fucking shiny. God, I love this comic. It's so good, so good. So anyway. The bad guys end up getting the drop on the Wildcats, and it looks like things are not looking so good. You know, uh, the issue ends with uh, kind of an ominous note of the Stargate opening and the Demonite fleet. They're about to pour through that Stargate, so... Oh, heavens, what's gonna happen now? Tune in next week, Bat fans. Same Bat time, same Bat... You know, God, this is just so good. This is just so, so, so fucking good. I love this comic. And guys, I remember, I've always liked the, liked the early offerings of Image Comics, all right? I kind of appreciated them. I think I've even said this in previous episodes, like even before this series. I think I even said that I appreciate these, com- I rather, I appreciated these comics from the standpoint that they're just sort of big, dumb, loud, explosive action movies. And that, that I do affirm, okay? I, I stand by that. But it's like at the same time, rereading them now... You know, after it's been years and years since I read through any of these things. And you compare these comics, which a lot of people make fun of today, compare these comics to uh, all this modern day bullshit with SJW politics and this far left identitarianism, shit art, shit writing, shit color, shit everything. And you know what? You can think these comics are as big a joke as you want. But number one, they de- they know what they are and they deliver on that premise. That's number one. And number two, it's just so refreshing. You know, all this time of reading all these shitty comics with shitty retcons and shitty reboots and all these other things. Something that tries as hard as possible to build a cohesive universe from the ground up and then fucking stick to it. God, I respect that. So anyway, and that... You know, I, I, it, it's kind of funny. Here I am trying to lavish praise on, on on this issue, and this keeps turning into a rant. And look, I apologize for that. Okay, I, I I really do. It's not supposed to be like that, but it's like at the same time, it feels like I, I'm just not doing my job if I don't explain what it is about these comics specifically that I love so much. And that that's. Honestly, there you go. Look no further than that. So anyway, so I'm trying to be more diligent about doing feedback. So I uh, I definitely want to get some feedback knocked out here. 
This uh, this email, this comes from my old friend, Fanboyimus Prime, dated November the 25th, 2014, just to tell you how far behind I am. Uh, subject line is entitled, Shooting the Shit. So I'm guessing this is in reference to one of my shit-shooting, shit-shootery episodes. And uh, Prime says, Hey, Magnus, listening to the... Uh, uh, listening to the shooting the shit episode, and there is one massive issue. The fact that editors and such not working to line up facts and such in the era of the internet. With wikis, fan pages, and whatnot, it really is easier to figure out how this stuff lines up. Uh, Prime, I'm putting your email on pause here to say, dude, I fucking agree with you. I mean, I consult wiki, just in case it wasn't obvious to anybody, I consult wikis and whatnot all the time to get details of uh, of comics or movies or shows or just whatever I'm talking about. I consult wikis just freaking all the time for my podcast just to do this, you know? And nobody's paying me for this. I mean, I get the occasional donation and whatnot, and I appreciate those, by the way, but generally speaking, nobody pays me for this. I'm doing this just really for, for love of the game, man. It's for love of the game. And the simple fact of the matter is, if I can take 10 seconds to Google some shit, why can't these writers today? Why can't these editors today? I mean, look, Prime, continuity is not a bad thing. You know, it's really not. And I know that, at least for me, continuity, it's not. It's one of those things that I don't want it to become a trap in a lot of ways. But it's like, at the same time, People have paid money for the old issues. They care about that stuff. They want that stuff to matter. And when you you get these writers through whatever modalities they use, be it retcons or reboots, or maybe they just, you know what, fuck it. From now on, we're doing my continuity, you know, and I don't care what came before. And to me, it's just, it's just a colossal prick thing to do, you know? Because it's like, who are you to de- to to decide what does and and does not matter, you know? So anyway, I mean, honestly, it's kind of tempting to say, why are why should we skip out on continuity? Let's face it, we are financially fucking invested in just for your trade paperback, Mister Hack Writer. Except I don't, to my knowledge, and Prime, if you think I'm wrong on this, I welcome your correction. But to my knowledge. Trade paperbacks really aren't the big deal that they used to be. I mean, I think they're that's still a pretty big part of the business, but I don't think it's that's the lifeblood of the comics industry, if we can even call it an industry anymore. But I don't think that's the lifeblood of the industry anymore in the way that it was, say, in 2005, 2006, and going through there. That's my sense of it anyway. I'm, I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Now... Guys, I've been running my mouth here for, at this point, over 40 minutes, so excuse me while I get a sip off of my orange vanilla Coke here. Because, yes, I, fuck it. That is the official beverage of Trinus Magnus Punch's Reality. Mm, so good. And I'm also going to get uh, some vapor, too. Because, hey, in for a penny, in for a pound. Am I right?
<clears throat> all right. So, all right. <clears throat> now, getting back into Prime's email, he writes, Of course, I'm also a huge fan of Kurt Busiek and rather have people at least having some ideas what shape the characters are in before they use them. Everything's sorted out in an even uh, better than reality way, question mark. Are you kidding me when dealing with dozens, if not hundreds, of writers for this stuff over time? That's impossible. And Prime, I put your email back on pause and say, you know, you're raising actually a couple of different points here. Uh, I was harping on continuity just a second ago, and I think it was John Byrne who said, continuity is one of those things that works great as long as we acknowledge that it really doesn't work at all. And he then outlined a, a, a variety of reasons why continuity doesn't really line up. I mean, it's one of those things that if you don't think about it too much, then yeah, I guess things kind of fit together in a way. But in pretty short order, you're you're hard-pressed to explain how it is, like I think it was back in the 90s, that Dick Grayson and Wally West, during their Titans years, they were supposed to be roughly peers with one another. Basically, no significant age difference between the two. Maybe Wally was a year or two older than than Dick, like tops. But that's it. We're not talking about any kind of substantial age difference. And then over time, things kind of morph and they twist. And it gets to a level where Nightwing is... He's, I want to say, pushing... He's somewhere close to 30. You know, whereas you get the idea that Wally, you know, the Flash, he's in tops early maybe mid 20s i i don't even think that much though certainly somewhere in his early 20s like 21 22 something like that you know barely old enough to fucking drink and somehow all of that exists in the same reality where superman is perpetually 29 years old he and batman are generally considered to be just about the same age even though that's not possible because if Superman is the same age as Batman and Dick Grayson is almost 30 by this point in the 90s Batman and Superman should easily be somewhere closing in on like their early to mid 40s even though that completely makes no sense whatsoever so what exactly is this but and, and and again it's one of those things that like John Byrne says, I mean, I'm not trying to, you know, plagiarize off the guy, but I think he, I think he really did put it pretty well when he said continuity works great as long as we acknowledge it doesn't actually work. So anyway, so I'm willing to look way the other way. As long as there's an effort to keep stories kind of lined up with each other, I'm not going to kick up too much fuss over character ages. You know, to me, I'm totally okay with characters starting off being roughly the same age, or at least having a certain relationship with each other age-wise, and then just over the course of a few decades, by creative necessity, that the age difference that whatever age compatibility they have, that kind of mutates and shifts and changes and gets twisted around because of stories that people need to tell. I don't mind that so much. What I want is for the stories themselves generally to remain in continuity unless there's a pressing reason for them to be removed, you know? So there's that. The other, the, 
specific example that you cite is uh, Kurt Busiek. And I'm, I'm going to be completely honest with you, Prime. I've got a couple of Astro City episodes that are in the can right now. I God, I recorded them ages ago and just never got around to releasing them. So they just, I guess at this point, they're sort of lost episodes. And the, exp- the small amount of exposure I've ever had to Kurt Busiek through, you know, Newsarama interviews and the like, or Wizard Magazine or just whatever over the decades, he always came off as a pretty, basically as a good guy. Right. He's he, he's all right. But in the last couple of years, he's just really been more and more acting like kind of a pompous prick to such a level that. Number one, I'm not sure if I want to continue talking about Astro City comics anymore. And uh, number two. It I hate to say it, but. It, it, it sort of makes it hard to be objective about any of his work, including Astro City, you know? So, I mean, I understand your point, and I'm not trying to get lost in the weeds on it, Prime. I, I promise, man. It's just that I, I, I hope I'm making sense to you when I say that this has been... Honestly, it's been a pretty rough couple of years. So, anyways. Whatever. You know what? This I'm just going to get back in the email. So... Uh, Prime goes on to say, getting the feeling that PQ River and I have very different feelings on comics, which is perfectly, I think what Prime is trying to say here is perfectly understandable. I'm because it doesn't actually say for sure, but I'm going to assume that's what it says. So, which is perfectly understandable. Everyone doesn't need to agree with me other than on that. Just because something makes a lot of money doesn't make, doesn't mean it is a quality product or my, or masterpiece of whatever medium that it's in. But that notion is really is off topic from that discussion. I actually tend to agree with you there. I liked Grant Morrison's action comics run. I liked Dan Jurgens' short run, uh, or rather short Superman run. I liked Supergirl being a Red Lantern. I enjoyed uh, Charles Saul's uh, Red uh, Red Lantern run. I liked Rob Liefeld and Frank Thierry's Grifter run. I'm interested in what Peter Tomasi does with uh, Superman Wonder Woman. Red Kryptonite. No real opinion on that stuff. I haven't really had it come up much in Superman reading over the years. Ah, Magic the Gathering. That was a game I remember fondly playing and having fun with. Though, I really want it, really won it, to be honest. Even played in a, in a pre-release tournament once. I'm going to put this back on pause and say, you know, this is one of those things, Prime, where, you know... Back in the 90s, you know, there was so much shit out there for me to choose from. I knew I was a geek, okay? I knew that, not even just a geek, I knew specifically that I was a collector, all right? And I knew what I wanted my future, generally, I knew what I wanted my future to be, right? But the thing, or at least I had an idea, but there were so many options, you know, all those different tabletop games, like Magic the Gathering, or there were video games, and like that was really far from being, you know, just something that the kids do. This was starting to become like legit hobby now, even for grown-ups, video games, right? So there was that, there was comics, uh, or perhaps, you know, being a movie buff. I knew that I wanted to be something, and honestly, my first love, by that point, I now knew that my first love was comics. And so especially with tabletop gaming, it's like I just 
I guess I don't get it. You know, I've seen people do it and I don't understand what the rules are or or how people know whose turn it is to do this, that or the other thing or how you begin or how you end. And I mean, I don't know. I mean, because like uh, Prime, like do these games ever really end? I mean, do you sit down? Can you play for like 10 or 20 minutes? Okay, I won the game because like you can do that with like poker, right? You can play a hand of poker and, you know, the winner wins, the loser loses and you know who does it and then that's the end of it. Or is this a thing of like you basically put a video game on, you basically save it and then you come back to it the next day or the next week or just whenever. Is that how it works with tabletop gaming or at least with magic? I mean, this is just one of those things that I never figured out. And so it's... I guess what I'm trying to say is there are there have been many barriers to me getting into tabletop gaming. That is definitely one of them. So anyway, good on you, though, for winning those tournaments, because uh, that is not easy to do. So uh, Prime goes on to write, noticed mention of Valiant and of Image, but nothing on Malibu. Then again, give it a, given it lasted not very long, would explain that. Uh, Prime, it's funny that you should mention all this, number one, because I'm talking about Image today, but number two, I was reading up on Valiant. I'm not promising anything. I'm not announcing anything. Not, sorry, Valiant, sorry. Malibu, right? You mentioned Malibu, and guys, I'm not announcing anything or promising anything, but I was reading up on, on Malibu earlier today, and maybe I'm, I might cover some of those comics in the future and maybe I won't. I'm, I'm not making any promises, but you, you know, doing the reading on that, you know, I always, the story that I always heard, and apparently this is quite completely apocryphal, but the story that I always heard was that Marvel, they bought Malibu because they wanted Malibu's in-house coloring process. That's the way it was always put to me. And for a lot of years there, I never had any real reason to doubt that, you know. So I just didn't really think a whole lot about it. And I I was reading Marvel at the time, and I noticed, yeah, you know, these these comics are starting to get colored the way that the old U Ultraverse used to get colored. So, wow, I guess there was something to those rumors after all, you know. So anyway, that was my memory of things. And come to find out, that is not true. The reason that... Marvel bought out Ultraverse. It's not because of coloring. Now, yes, Marvel did end up using the the Malibu coloring, the in-house coloring process, because originally what they wanted to do was farm everything out to uh, some kind of uh, graphics firm in Ireland to do all their coloring. They wanted to do it out of house, basically. And so what ended up happening was whoever that that graphics firm is or was, they just weren't getting it done. Deadlines were being missed. Books were in danger of shipping late. And so as a last ditch, eh, basically as a last resort, at gunpoint, against their will, and only when all other options had failed, did Marvel turn to Malibu's in-house coloring system that, let's face it, they bought everything Malibu owned, including the coloring process, and so they started using it just so that they could they could stay on schedule. And then slowly but surely, artists and writers began requesting 
the Malibu coloring because it turned out so well. And so that's how it happened. You know, it was sort of, it's kind of like serendipity that nobody was looking for, but like they found it anyway. So I don't know. But so, but, but like I say, that apparently is not the reason that, that Marvel bought out Malibu. Basically the reason that it happened was, it was not uh, common knowledge apparently in the industry that DC was in talks with Malibu I don't know so much to buy out all of Malibu, but certainly to buy out at least the Ultraverse. And so let's think about that for a second, guys. Like Marvel was sitting pretty at something like, uh, I think at that time, like 35, maybe 40, maybe 45% of the market share. DC was holding steady at 30%. And I think Image, I forget where they were, but they were not nobody. I mean, they were a player in the industry, but it wasn't quite uh, 33, 33, 33. It it wasn't quite that balance. But especially at different points in the 90s, uh, DC was very competitive with Marvel. All right. People tend to forget that. But at, at certain points, very, I mean, like within two or three percentage points. I mean, almost the margin of error, right? Now, yeah, there was a time when Image briefly overtook DC, but then they kind of ended up shooting themselves in the foot with all their late books and everything. It just gets to a point where, through sheer attrition, Image just isn't able to keep up. So DC retook the number two spot. So, like I say, there were times when DC was within striking distance in, in terms of being the leader in the marketplace. Now, if they were to buy the Ultraverse and then basically set up an Ultraverse imprint of DC, there you go. DC is now number one. And Marvel, they were so fucking insecure about themselves and their place in the industry and all this that they decided, no, we cannot have that. So we're going to buy Malibu just to take them away from D.C. They bought them knowing, or at least believing, having very good reason to believe, they were never, ever going to do anything with the Ultraverse characters. They basically assassinated an entire comic book universe just to keep D.C. at, at number two. And that kind of feeds into a perception that I've had for a long time that Marvel is basically governed by a bunch of just insecure, narcissistic, I don't even know what. I mean, just some petty fucking assholes, you know? It's like, really, does like that extra 6 or 7% in the marketplace, does it really mean that much to you that you're going to basically put all of these people out of a fucking job just so you don't have to be number two? I mean, I kind of do believe, I, I do somewhat subscribe to that, to that, that kind of 80s chic idea that business is war. I mean, look, we ain't in business to make friends, guys. We're, we're here to offer a bigger, better product to consumers than the other guy. And if there's something that we can do to shit in his cornflakes without breaking the law, then guess what we're going to do? But it's like at the same time, you know, I, it, to me, it is the height of immoral to buy a company, number one, just to just to uh, fuck over one of your competitors, 
And then number two, knowing all the while you're just going to fucking fire everybody that works for that company and put them on the unemployment line. That, I mean, it's not even like, well, gee, that's a real prick thing to do. No, that's evil, okay? You don't fucking do that to somebody. You do not buy out somebody else's company for the express reason of killing it, okay? Uh, that is, oh, and not only killing that, but firing everybody, okay? I don't care what your reasons are or, or what your fucking sob story is, how big your ambition might be. You don't have a fucking... Prime, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I don't know what my problem is today. I'm just in a very, very ranty mood. So, anyway, getting back into Prime's email, he writes, As for Star Wars, eh, I'm more of a Trek man myself. Also, a Super Robot Wars fan. I mean, you got all the mecha uh, animes of the 70s, 80s, 90s to today uh, thrown together in a blender and have the good guys team up and fight the bad guys. Hell, the voice, the voice actors on Gundam Seed and Gundam Seed Destiny prefer the SRW takes of how Gundam Seed Destiny played out over the original anime. That I did not know. In fact, I don't really know a whole lot about anime, but let's face it, everybody knows about Gundam. I liked Earth X. Universe X as well. Enjoyed whatever the third one was as well. Though, I find it weird that for a universe cut off of the Marvel multiverse... Uh, cut off of the mo Marvel multiverse, Kang somehow got the daughter of Spider-Man from it into his multiversal chrono core. So I end with this. Mega's XLR is awesome. Yeah. Well, uh, Prime, look, thanks a lot, man. Thank you for, for taking the time to write in. As I you know, said last week, I uh, appreciate your patronage. I appreciate uh, all of your, you know, the feedback that you sent me over the years. Keep it coming, man. Um, hopefully I'm making good on the promise that I made that I'm gonna get caught up on all of this, you know, feedback and everything, and I'm really sorry for letting thing, uh, things languish as I did. But like I say, I am trying to make good on that right now, and um, hopefully that makes hopefully that makes some kind of a difference for you. So, uh, as to next week, I'm gonna be wrapping up the the last of the Wildcats issues that I'm going to be talking about in this mega series before I shift gears to talk about another four issues of a different image comic book next week, but that's for next week. So I think that's pretty much it for me for this week. So bye, everybody. I will see you next week. So I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com. You can also find this show on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. 
My Facebook group is the only official place where you can find everything that has anything to do with this show. The reason for that is because I despise Twitter. Pretty much everything about Twitter sucks. So join the Facebook group today. Speaking of Facebook, you can friend me just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at trentusmagnus at gmail.com. But remember, all feedback and correspondence emailed to me will be read on mic unless you request otherwise. So, if your email isn't intended for public consumption, don't forget to say so. Otherwise, I'll assume that you want your correspondence to be heard by my dozens and dozens of fans across the world. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Since we're on the subject of feedback, Trentus Magnus Punches Reality can be found on iTunes just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. Won't you take a moment to rate my show on iTunes? That helps new listeners find the show. And just in case you don't think that I've given you enough shit to click on just yet, you can sponsor my show simply by going to twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the PayPal button, donate any amount at all, specify that you're sending Magnus some monetary love, and you will be an official sponsor of my show's very next episode, with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy, and there's no minimum donation. Be a Trennis Magnus show sponsor today. I don't have a Patreon, because if you think that I hate Twitter, boy, just wait till you hear what I think of Patreon. So, if you want to throw some bucks my way, the Two True Freaks PayPal link is the way to do it. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void were prohibited by law. Some assembly required. Batteries not included. Many will enter. Few will win. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trinus Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonsacor of Milan, Italy. Magnus here. Here at Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, I sometimes release episodes all about Smallville. This is Magnus Talks About Smallville. In my opinion, Smallville is the most underrated live-action adaptation of Superman in all of history. Magnus Talks About Smallville is dedicated to the themes, story arcs, 
and character motivations of Smallville. I do a ton of in-depth analysis on each episode of the show, and people seem to love listening to me talk about Smallville. And I want you along for the ride. Check out Magnus Talks About Smallville, and listen for yourself about why Smallville is awesome. Magnus Talks About Smallville, only at 2TrueFreaks.com. <laughs>